All right, we like to talk science in this program, and I think we're going to devote the entire uh, second segment today to catching up on the world of science. Um, I'd like to first point out that somebody at NASA uh, in the publicity department apparently uh, has been working a little too hard. We talked uh, many months back about the Cassini mission to Saturn, which was showing some unusual temperature readings from the small moon Enceladus. The south pole of the planet showed temperature readings that were much higher than expected. Well, it turns out that they're so high that apparently the small moon is erupting geysers of water off into space. Now, this is not exactly unique in the solar system. Venus has large volcanoes. Of course, we have them here on Earth. Mars has some humongous, uh, you know, statewide-sized uh, uh, giant volcanoes. Jupiter's moon Io has actively erupting volcanoes of spewing a sulfurous-like substance on its surface. When they went to Neptune's moon Triton, they were stunned in 1989 to discover that it apparently has geysers of liquid nitrogen. So stuff spewing out in volcanic-like eruptions uh, is hardly unique to this small moon Enceladus, just that no one has ever found water geysers quite like this. Everyone's, uh, this is being reported as, uh, well, where there's water, it could be life's distant outpost. Well, yeah, maybe. I mean, I know NASA has to generate uh, interest in, in what it's up to, and that's a good thing, but I think that they're just a little out of line. Carolyn Porco, head of the Cassini Imaging Team and a planetary scientist at the Space Science Institute in Boulder, Colorado, said, As far as I'm concerned, we just hit the ball out of the park. This is the holy grail of modern-day planetary exploration, evidence of liquid water somewhere else in the solar system. Uh, I don't know. I got news for Dr. Porco. There's massive evidence of water all over Mars. We know that uh, Jupiter's moon uh, Europa is, a, is sort of a stepped-up version of Saturn's Enceladus. It's, a, it's an ice ball that clearly has liquid water under the surface. If I'm not mistaken, the two brightest objects in the solar system are Europa and Enceladus, with some sort of convection cell uh, uh, reworking these, uh, both of these moon surfaces so that they do not have a lot of craters on board. They're very fresh, new, white, brilliant reflective surfaces. Now, we're, we're big fans of NASA and planetary exploration, and, and in particular of the Cassini mission. And uh, it's, it's doing some unbelievable science out there with uh, Saturn, Saturn's moon Titan, uh, Enceladus. You know, stay tuned. We're going we're gonna to return to these, uh, these fascinating tales that are being told by this robot working out uh, on the, um, the colder reaches of the solar system, but this whole idea that just because they found liquid water means, boy, life is likely to be there, well, maybe not. In fact, probably not, although hope springs eternal. But speaking of extraterrestrial life, we're quite fascinated by New Scientist magazine's cover story last week titled Alien Rain, Every Drop Contains Life, But Not As We Know It. New Scientist is not so prone to make the sexy, uh, you know, grabber-type headlines as a lot of other magazines. But this cover story is quite weird. It's quite fascinating. It's quite uh, provocative. And uh, is as follows. Godfrey Lewis, a physicist working in the Indian state of Kerala, which is in uh, India's southern tip, 
noted that in, for two months in 2001, red rain fell sporadically across the state of Kerala. This began on the 25th of July. Red rain fell in a town called Katyam. Over the next two months, uh, red rain fell sporadically there and in other Kerala districts, gradually tailing off over time. The local newspapers buzzed with eyewitness reports. People found their clothes stained by red raindrops. Usually the red rain would fall for less than 20 minutes. Lewis and his student Santhosh Kumar went out, uh, compiled more than 120 reports of rain from local newspapers and other sources, and they gathered samples of the red rain from spots more than 100 kilometers apart. Under a microscope, they could see red particles 4 to 10 microns wide, with an average density of about 9 million particles per milliliter. When they dried the samples, they found that each cubic meter of rainwater contained about 100 grams of this red stuff. They calculated that there was probably about 500,000 cubic meters of water in total, which would have contained 50 tons of red particles. Okay, so what was this stuff? Well, they took a look at it and decided that, you know, it looks, they look like red blood cells. They look biological. And yet uh, they have, uh, well, like red blood cells, they have uh, no nuclei. But no one can figure out how these, this could be blood, 50 tons of blood, coming down out of the atmosphere. Godfrey Lewis uh, links the colored rain to a meteor airburst. He noted that during the early hours of the 25th of July, just hours before the first rain fell, several people in the Katyam district heard a loud sonic boom that made their houses rattle. Lewis's extraordinary claim is that these may represent microorganisms spread into the Earth's atmosphere from the airburst of an icy cometary body striking the skies of the Earth above southern India. As Carl Sagan used to say, extraordinary claims require extraordinary proof. Well, uh, so far examination of these particles have shown no DNA, which makes it pretty unlikely that these represent uh, pollen uh, grains or algae or fungal spores or, or even red blood cells from presumably some, uh, some large icy bodies smacking into a flock of birds or, or, or bats high in the atmosphere. It's, it's a very strange story, and the surface just sounds preposterous that this could be extraterrestrial life. However... Uh, scientists have taken a look at, uh, at this man's reporting and note that his report on the subject, which will appear in Astrophysics and Space Science in the next few months, is described as impressive in its detail. The magazine quoted a scientist as saying, everything in the paper is done correctly. There's nothing wacky about it. It's being described as very, very thorough indeed. This whole idea of panspermia, the Earth being seeded uh, or other planets being seeded by uh, life contained in comets, is an old idea. And it, it, it's been noted by many that this would explain one of the mysteries about life on Earth, that the solar system began, uh, began 4.6 billion years ago. And yet about 3.9 billion years ago, it appears from carbon isotopes in ancient rocks that primitive microbes were thriving. Had microbes arrived from space, this would, uh, you know, eliminate a lot of problems in how it could have evolved so quickly. The jury is very, very much out on this subject, but I was impressed by the fact that new scientists not given to uh, flights of fancy, uh, uh, you know, is, is on board as, as taking a, a solid look at this makes it remarkable. Stay tuned for a follow-up on that one. 
Curiously, the magazine notes that panspermia uh, was given a boost by the uh, the Columbia tragedy in February of 2003. Robert McLean at Texas State University had sent three strains of bacteria on the doomed Columbia sealed in a box to see how weightlessness would affect their growth. After, uh, of course, the, uh, the the shuttle broke apart, the, the box was actually... Uh, Salvaged from the wreckage, it had survived temperatures of more than 175 degrees centigrade. The bacterial strains apparently had died, but uh, the researcher was surprised to find that another bacterium, Microbospora, was thriving inside. This uh, hardy bacterium was evidently a contaminant, but it is curious that it was able to survive a fiery passage back through the Earth's atmosphere. All right, and to move from exobiology to the conventional terrestrial kind, uh, let's talk a little bit about fisheries. There's a lot in the news lately about this, and we've talked about it on this show, uh, and, and we're very concerned about what is happening out there. Cover the Sacramento Bee, March 8, 2006. They're considering, federal fish managers are considering uh, closing down salmon fishing in the Pacific Northwest this winter. The closure recommendation comes as biologists express concern that fewer mature Chinook salmon are, sp are spawning to replace fish that are dying off. People are arguing about uh, what, uh, what is to blame. Some people are saying it's warmer temperatures that is causing parasites. They're pointing to river dams. Predictably, salmon fishermen are, are up in arms saying this will ruin them. They'll be out of business. But, uh, but the truth is, folks, you know, if the salmon die off, they're going to be out of business later rather than sooner. Sustainability is, of course, the key word, and it, you know, it, it appears that the salmon are in trouble, and we think probably they may, uh, you know, we're not experts on fisheries. We're going to try and get some folks in this show that are, but it seems like this may be necessary, because frankly, there are problems with fisheries everywhere in the United States. In our own delta, the population of the tiny delta smelt has hit an all-time low in this, that vast estuary east of San Francisco Bay. These results are troubling scientists who consider the fish an indicator of the health of the waterway. If that news wasn't bad enough, the population of a second bellwether species, the longfin smelt, was also at near record lows since measurements began in 1969. Evidently, two other harbinger fish species, threadfin shad and young striped bass, have some, had some increases uh, over some low levels but are still far below their historic levels. Scientists are con concerned about the crash of four fish species and frustrated they've been unable to determine the cause after some emergency research. And off our coast, federal regulators are considering for the first time a West Coast ban on fishing for some of the ocean's tiniest creatures, krill, the shrimp-like uh, crustaceans that support a vast food web of fish, seabirds, and whales. Warming ocean waters produced a drop in krill numbers last spring. This set off a domino effect of sea life death, a group that advises the U.S. Department of Commerce on fishing regulations, uh, is expected to limit the fishing of krill in federal waters 200 miles from shore. Krill fishing is already prohibited in federal waters off of Alaska. This cycles back to our salmon issue. It, it turns out that farmed salmon uh, have to be fed krill so that the flesh of the fish 
does not appear grayish, a color unappetizing to consumers. The reddish krill, of course, uh, give you that nice salmon uh, salmon red color that we hope to uh, see in salmon steaks. Uh, if they feed the salmon krill, they don't have to label it uh, as having had natural additives put in it to make the salmon pink. Uh, so labeled fish discourages potential buyers. And I'm sorry, this is somewhat of a gloomy topic today, but I think we should refer you to Sierra Magazine, published by the Sierra Club article about diving into California's last abalone fishery. The author of the article, Daniel Duane, notes, uh, apparently he's in his 50s, that when he was a kid, abalone seemed abundant in the state. There was still a commercial fishery, sport fishing limits were generous, and everybody's dad seemed to grab a few abs on weekends. I can report to myself Going out with my dad and doing abalone diving, the limit was five for all of us. Unfortunately, abalone stocks are now so depleted that all commercial harvesting has been outlawed on the West Coast, and recreational diving is allowed only north of San Francisco, and even then with limits of no more than three per day per person. Total of 20 per season. Scuba, scuba gear is, of course, forbidden as it always has been. Uh, you know, it's, it's been pretty well known for some time that people with scuba gear are out there just poaching up a storm, and it has had a devastating effect. Mr. McMillan, having a commercial diving license himself, uh, knows people that report that up in the North Coast, uh, uh, apparently uh, commercial divers use scuba gear and just poach up a storm. I'm always amused to see the poor sea otter blamed for declines in, uh, in, in abalone stocks. I remember when I took a scuba class right here at UCD, and we went down uh, to Monterey to get a checkout dive, and they reported, oh, you won't see any abalone down there where we're going to dive. They, the otters have picked them clean. <laughs> As we went down there, and I surveyed the beach and saw what lo looked like it probably wasn't hundreds, but it was certainly scores of neoprene-clad human beings. I looked around and said, yeah, yeah, boy, those sea otters have really been at work around here. The bad news about this article, even with uh, the banning of all commercial and, and recreational harvesting of abalone south of San Francisco and the only remaining abalone fishery north of there, it appears that... Uh, that uh, even this, what is thought to have been a well-managed, sustainable fishery may be on its way out. Very sad thing for me, having grown up eating abalone as, as, a, as a boy, but, uh, you know, if we have to, like, give the species a rest for a few decades, well, then I think we just have to. Regrettably, things are just as bad on the east coast of the United States. Uh, we would refer you to Mother Jones Magazine's April issue, which has long articles in it about the fishing industry. Included as a freebie in the magazine is a Seafood Watch, a national seafood guide for 2006 uh, associated with the Monterey Bay Aquarium. It lists foods to avoid. I was distressed to read in the Sacramento News and Review one restaurant uh, being touted for how great its Chilean sea bass was. We've talked about this on the show before. You should not be eating Chilean sea bass, also known as Patagonian toothfish. Large commercial trawlers are down there in Antarctica, and they're just strip mining the sea of this fish. As we've mentioned before, you should also be avoiding spiny lobster, which comes from the Caribbean. Uh, at this point in time, what used to be an astoundingly plentiful resource is limited now to depths of 140 feet or greater. 
And as you can imagine, in, in Honduras and in Central America, the number of divers that are being sent down in unsafe conditions to get the bends, while they also strip mine the Caribbean of lobster. Atlantic cod, once perhaps the most prolific uh, breeder of, uh, in, in the world, um, is now in deep, deep trouble, and, uh, and poachers are going in with smaller nets, taking more immature fish, and this is something else to avoid. So let's just go through the list, I think, that's from the Seafood Watch of things to be a responsible individual you may wish to, uh, to, to avoid. In addition to the Caribbean lobster, the sea bass, and the Atlantic cod, it's recommended that you avoid king crab, all grouper, Atlantic halibut, monkfish, orange ruffy, Pacific rockfish, scallops from the mid-Atlantic, sharks, imported shrimp, red snapper, uh, all forms of caviar, swordfish, and bluefin tuna. For you fish lovers, the best choices were judged to be U.S. farmed catfish, farmed clam, Pacific cod, Dungeness or snow crab, Atlantic herring or sardines, Pacific halibut, farmed mussels, farmed oysters, wild-caught salmon from Alaska, striped bass, farmed tilapia, farmed rainbow trout, and albacore tuna. Also, big eye and yellowfin uh, varieties of tuna, which are either caught by uh, poles or via trolling. And Mother Jones talks a bit about Chesapeake Bay, uh, how oysters used to keep the water astoundingly clear in the bay, but pollution has killed them off. And in fact, it is uh, unfortunately due to fertilizer, nitrogen running off into the bay, causing algal blooms, which depletes the waters of oxygen and kills everything in some of the greater depths. Now, uh, Menhaden has for centuries provided the largest catch of any U.S. fishery. You probably haven't heard of Menhaden. It's an oily fish. It's not eaten much. Well, in fact, nobody eats it because they're too oily and they're full of bones and they smell bad. But the problem with the Menhaden is it's the most important fish in North America. For most of the 20th century, Menhaden provided the largest catch of any U.S. fishery, annually exceeding in both numbers and weight all other fish combined. When Europeans first arrived on the east coast of America, they encountered a living river of Menhaden flowing with the seasons north and south along the coast. The Menhaden eat algae, which means they actually help clean up waters that are filled with phytoplankton. But with overfishing of the Menhaden, and this was done by employing airplane scouts to go out and find where these shoals of fish were and then sending out just huge numbers of trawlers to take take them in astounding numbers where they are unfortunately ground up and fed to chicken as high protein supplements or converted into fertilizer well under such stress as the population has crashed in fact fishing for menhaden has now been banned in all but uh, virginia and north carolina but if the stocks crash further, it's going to be an even bigger disaster for Chesapeake Bay, which uh, once produced more seafood per acre than any body of water on Earth. But with oyster populations now 1% of what they'd been at the turn of the 20th century, and with the Menhaden under, uh, under siege, well, it, it could really be a true ecological catastrophe. So it appears on the East Coast, the fish need a break. Unfortunately, a spinoff of what was once George Herbert Walker's Zapata Oil Corporation uh, has gotten in the fish harvesting business. 
In the early 1990s, reclusive real estate mogul Malcolm Glazier took control of Zapata Oil. This is the guy that also purchased the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And evidently in the UK also purchased Manchester United. Here's that Mr. Glazier's making quite a bit of dough with his new company, which has been called Omega Protein. And yeah, guess what the source of the protein is. Well, apparently uh, one of the greatest effects of this depletion of menhaden has been that fish higher up in the food chain that eat this oily, bony fish uh, are, are now starving. Mother Jones reports that Greenpeace is at work trying to get, uh, get, this, uh, get this stopped. Uh, apparently the state of Virginia is restricting the annual catch on Chesapeake in the Chesapeake area. Omega said it may try to have the limit uh, revoked by the Virginia legislature. We can only hope that they do not. We're going to try and stay on this story. Final depressing item of our second, uh, second segment look at science. The Three Gorges Dam in China? Well, guess what? It isn't even fully operational yet, but it's already threatening one of the world's biggest fisheries in the East China Sea. The amount of fresh water and, and sediment reaching the sea is to blame. Researchers have detected massive declines in the phytoplankton that forms the basis of the food chain in the area. Folks, it's the same story everywhere. The world's fisheries are in deep, deep trouble. And I guess the first step in doing something about it is at least bringing the problem to your attention. That's what we've done now, and uh, as promised, we will continue to follow all of these stories. We might do well to quote Edmund Burke, who said, Nobody made a greater mistake than he who did nothing, because he could only do a little. And yes, we'll try to lighten the mood a bit in segment number three. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. This is KDVS 90.3 FM, Davis, Sacramento. Yeah.